what we're going to do this morning is we are going to talk about a word in the Bible that is super, super, super important. Um, I can't stress enough how important this word is. I thought we were going to look at important words this morning in Romans 1 to 5. We're going to talk about an important word. I wouldn't say it's the most important, but it is crucial. It's in the Old Testament all over the place. It's in the New Testament all over the place. I have to confess to you that from a long time in my Christian life, in my earliest days, I didn't even know what it meant. Uh, it's all over Romans. It's next to impossible to understand Romans if you don't understand this word. It's no wonder that I pulled my hair out going to Bible study every week studying Romans. And, and it was, I mean, I got the gospel. I'm thankful for that. But it was like this riddle book. And to the point where I look back and think, was I even, did I have the Spirit of God in me? I mean, if someone would have come alongside of me and said, I'm going to tell you what this word means and kind of how it works in Romans, it would have revolutionized my life. It would have simplified things so much and helped me so much. And so while you guys are probably all smarter than I am and you already know all about the word, um, I know that not all of you do. And so I want to help. Um, and, and the more you understand how it works, the better. So if you've been a Christian for a long time, I think it'll still help you. Um, Romans is a super important book in the Bible. It's really simple in one sense and not in another. So if I can help you read Romans better... Um, and easier, um, we'll really be on to something. So you're wondering what the word is. It's a word we don't use in our culture. I heard Pastor Mike Grimes use it today, and I, I'm, I'm thinking, I bet there are people here who don't even know what that word is, but it's a super important word. It's vital to understanding the work of Christ, to understanding God, to understanding ourselves. You're wondering what the word is. It's a word that when we talk about in our culture, we use it in a negative way. We don't use it in a positive way. The word is righteous, okay? The word is righteous or righteousness. Um, when we use it today, we say, oh, you know, self-righteous. It's, it's in a pejorative kind of negative sort of way. Um, but it's, it's just absolutely crucial that we understand righteousness. So I don't have a sermon outline this morning. We're going to go through, we'll, go, we'll see how far we get in Romans, and then I'll just say we're done. Um, because we need to be done, so we'll see how that goes. But there are some, uh, some questions you should be able to answer after. So throughout the sermon, throughout our study, if you will, um, you'll be able to answer some really important questions. I wrote down five questions that I for sure would want you to be able to answer. Uh, the first one would be, what is righteous? What is righteousness? The second question is, how does it relate to God? How does it relate to God? In other words, how does righteousness relate to God? Third, how does it relate to sinners? How does it relate to sinners? Fourth, how does it relate to Jesus? How does it relate to Jesus? And fifth, how does it relate to justification? How does it relate to justification? If I haven't already sold you on why this is important, let me say up front that God is righteous and God requires perfect righteousness. So for you to have a right relationship with God, this is something you have to have. And you have to have it perfectly. 
or God can fairly condemn you. Now, I need to prove that from the Bible, but I, I just want you to, to realize this is, this is a big deal. Not only that, if this righteousness comes to you through the work of Jesus, as we know it in the gospel, then it will help us to see Jesus for who he is, for what he did, and it would be an amazing, amazing fuel for the fire of our worship. So practical on one level, practical on another level, it's what would give you joy and, and, and gratitude and, and gratefulness unto the Lord. And as I've already mentioned, it'll help you read your Bible and it'll make way more sense. So I hope, I hope that sparks your interest a little bit. If you would turn to Romans chapter 2, uh, and the reason I'm having you turn to Romans chapter 2, we'll go back to chapter 1, but I'm just going to go ahead and give you a definition. Um, this is from a standard dictionary, a Christian dictionary, um, and they're going to use Romans 2, but he, here, this is just standard definition of righteousness or righteous. The word righteous is a forensic, legal, courtroom, right? Forensic is a forensic term used of upholding the law. We just answered question number one. It's a legal term, a forensic term used for upholding the law. It's a law word. It's in relationship to God's law. And that same dictionary uses Romans chapter 2, verse 13 as an illustration. And so let's go ahead and go there. We're not going to get into the meaning of it right now. But since it's used in the dictionary, I thought, yeah, that's a great one to use. Um, 2.13 says, For it is not the hearers of the law... Okay, who are righteous before God. See, law is related to righteous. But the doers of the law who will be justified or declared righteous. So that's a great text for them to use. And here's this Greek dictionary trying to explain words. And they say, here's an example. We'll prove the point. They didn't just make this up. It's a word that relates to the law, to upholding the law or keeping the law. So then if we talk about God, God is the judge, and so he's the one who makes sure his law is upheld. He requires the upholding of his law. So, so much of, in, so much of Romans, especially early on, is about this. God is the judge. He's the righteous judge. God has a law, and God requires others to keep his law. And so he requires righteousness. He's righteous. Maybe one other text before we jump in, um, by way of preview, would be Romans chapter 10. hope to come back here maybe at the end, but for now, let's just go to verse 3. It says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's at least for now see that they're ignorant about God and His law requirement, His righteousness. So what do they do? People who are lost, people who aren't believers, here talking about the Jews. They try to establish their own kind of law-keeping. 
they don't realize what God is actually requiring. And so they try to come up with their own. And it's disastrous. And ultimately they fail to see Jesus for righteousness. That's what they need. So, okay, now let's go, let's go back to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 2, and 3 uh, deals with these issues and they're gospel-related issues. I don't know how we're doing on answering the questions so far, but I think we've already answered lots of them <laughs> in one way or another. But we're going to go ahead and start in one eighteen, and we're going to go through chapter 3, verse 20. And just so you know how Romans 1, 2, and 3 work, the first 17 verses are introduction, and then one eighteen through 3.20 is trying to argue one major point, and that is that no one's righteous. In other words, everybody's guilty. Everyone's a sinner, and therefore everyone is unrighteous. And we know that this is the case um, because he says in chapter 3, verse 10, as he's getting close to the end of his argument, um, so it's all driving somewhere, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Okay? So you have to remember that as you go, or you're going to get lost, and you're going to come up with all kinds of weird, funky theology about righteousness, and about justification, and about salvation, and about Jesus, and about the gospel. What Paul is going to do in a legal kind of way, how fitting, is argue that everyone is unrighteous. In other words, no one keeps God's law as God requires. So he's going to deal with just people in general, And then he's going to deal with religious, quote-unquote, moral people because he knows the Jews are going to object because they're going to say we're better than other people because we have God's law. We have it. But he's going to make sure they understand, but they don't keep it. And so the point being, it gets us to the place where I like to say we're we're painted into a corner. We have corners in this church. (laughs) We're painted into a corner, and we have to say, then what? Well, you need Jesus, and here's why. Are we ever going to start? We're going to go fast, but here we go. Okay, chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Oh, we know what that means. Unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. I'm going to put my finger there just for a second. Later on in chapter 2, he's going to say that even the Gentiles have the law of God written on their hearts. So this is something that everybody has. Okay, let's keep going. In the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. That's the unrighteous part, right? or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking or in their speculating, as some of your translations might say, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore or forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. This is a form of judgment for their women exchanged natural relations with that 
are, with, for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Then 28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, it's interesting, that takes us back logically to 118, their unrighteous acting. They didn't acknowledge Him as God anymore. Who are you to make the rules? Right? What does your law matter? Just saying it a different way. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. We know what that means. Evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, huh, we know what that is, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. People are sinners. Okay? And remember, where he's going with this is not uh, to get us to the place where we say, oh yeah, all those bad people out there. Lord, thank you, I'm not like them. That's not where this argument is going. This is taking us all out at the knees. We have to remember that, okay? This is so we see our need for Jesus, not so that we see our need for self-righteousness. Good to go? Keep going? What if you said no? (laughs) I don't know what... Okay, let's keep going. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse... Oh man, every one of you who judges. That would make sense that he uses that kind of wording because he's using all this legal kind of talk about righteous, unrighteous. You have no excuse, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn. That's another justice word. You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly fairly, righteously, falls on those who practice such things. Yeah, we we can all come to that conclusion. The problem is you're guilty too, Mr. or Mrs. Moral Person, supposedly. Verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Implied answer class. Yeah, no. Or do you presume... On the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Remember, again, I'm going to put my finger there for a second. He talked about wrath in chapter 1, and typically for us moralist kinds of types, us right-wingers, we're like, yeah, wrath and judgment. And now he's using the same word here, wrath at us. Because it's for everybody, because we're all unrighteous. So wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous, fair, just, right, judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. To those who are in verse 7, to those who by practice in doing, excuse me, let me start over. To those who by patience... In well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. 
He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Got to stop there. If you don't keep it in context, you're going to come up with some really funky views of salvation that aren't Christian. Because we know where he's going. Where he's going is everyone is condemned. So when you read verse 7, make sure you keep the context in mind. Those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. How many people are going to be qualified for that? None. None. Unless you want to talk about the exception, who would be the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point is, God is fair. God is righteous. God is just. So if people do the right thing, He'll give them eternal life. If people do the wrong thing, He's going to condemn them. But it's all part of a bigger argument where He's going with this. So, so it's important that we see this. Verse 9, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. It's not either or. Verse 10, But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Everyone who has been righteous will have eternal life. That's a zero, <laughs> right? It's going to be a super short line. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> no waiting in aisle five. <laughs> super short. But, but his point is God is as a judge, is utterly, completely, entirely just or righteous or fair. For so many years, I thought righteous just meant holy. And they're related, but they're, they don't mean the exact same thing. God is holy and righteous. He's holy righteous, but to be holy is unique, distinct, without rival, without peer. Certainly that means for God without sin. But righteous is a law word, a judge word. He's a holy judge. He's different than all other judges. But let's make sure that we see the difference. Let's keep going. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law... So... Now he's going to deal with Jews and Gentiles, okay? Will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, this would be a Jewish person, will be judged by the law. For it is not, verse 13, the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. That's a super important verse. I know we already looked at it. Again, Jewish context. We've got the law. We're God's people, chosen nation. He gave us His law, inscripturated. Look at us. And we hear it expounded and explained. We memorize it. We teach it to our children. And he says, it's not the hearers of the law who will be justified in God's courtroom. It's the doers. So who's going to be, now we're not talking about Jesus yet, but apart from Jesus, who's going to be justified on Judgment Day? 
Everyone who has perfectly upheld the law. Short line. 14. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And he's, he, he can't help himself. He wants to start talking about Jesus a little bit. But even people who don't have inscripturated law have law because everyone has the law of God written on their heart. And even in a relative sense, unbelievers do all kinds of lowercase g good. They know right and wrong in one way or another. You can see good moral qualities in atheists. They've got the law of God written on their heart. They know. There's something deep down inside of them that causes them to, to know right and wrong on one level or another. It might be perverted, twisted. Yes, yes, yes. But sometimes even in their doing the right thing, it shows the guiltiness of the religious people, which is where he's going. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, notice these are badges of honor, uh, self-adhesive badges of honor, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having uh, in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Reminds me of Jesus, by the way, talking about if you think it, it's as if you've done it. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, the godless, the non-Jews, because of you. They even know it's wrong. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. But no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. See, this is a spiritual matter. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. That's really what God is looking for. And again, he's headed somewhere... You guys are all guilty, Gentile and Jew alike. That's what he wants them to see. Because remember in chapter 10, the Jews fail to see God's righteousness as, you know, absolute, pure, heart, mind, strength, right? Everything, pure devotion. And so they seek to establish their own and then they don't see Jesus as the one they need. That helps us to see what's going on here. We surviving? So far? Chapter 3. 
then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some, some were unfaithful? Does their, uh, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true and everyone, uh, let God be true though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people sl- uh, slanderously charge us with, with saying, that our condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, I underlined that three times, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Let's keep going to finish it out. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. That's the intent. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. How about that? That helps us to interpret everything we've seen already. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We'll stop there for a second and hide the sharp objects. But Paul knows, right? Paul knows that we think that somehow God is going to judge us in comparison to other people. We can always find somebody worse than we are. And he knows that we're going to seek to establish our own righteousness. How about this? He knows that every human heart knows that that there's something about righteousness that's right, right? About doing the right thing, about obeying. And so what are we going to do when we're twisted and perverted in our thinking? We're going to seek to establish our own because we've forgotten about God's. No, when we come to grips with the fact that God's righteousness, His law is such that He requires perfection for life, then we're not going to be busy trying to come up with our own kind of righteousness. We're going to see our need for a perfect one. That's what he's doing. He just wants to put every nail in the coffin and so we'll say, I need perfect righteousness. I need a perfect law keeper because I am a lawbreaker even if I can do lowercase g good. That's where the whole argument's going. Now, one thing I haven't done is I haven't said what the law is. I think you can figure it out in our passage. But to make sure that there's no guessing, 
There's no questioning about it. Maybe we should go to Luke 10. Okay, so let's maybe put a finger here, a marker here. Let's go to Luke 10. And in Luke 10, this isn't really a foul to go to Luke 10 and try to figure this out because later in Romans 10, Paul references Leviticus 18. You don't need to know this, but I'm just letting you know. As the standard. And Jesus does the exact same thing. So whatever Paul means, I think Jesus means too. What's the law? It's used in different ways in the Bible. It's used for written, for the Jews. But when you boil it all down in its basic sense, the one that's written on people's hearts, the one that is inscripturated also, in its very essence, we find it here. How about verse 25? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. This would be an expert in the law, lawyer in that sense. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Million dollar question, right? He's asking the right question. He's asking the right guy. This is perfect. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, You're a legalist. That's the wrong answer. Mm-mm. He didn't. We have to know that he didn't. We want Jesus to say that. Because we want, we, we want it to be somehow God just pardons us just because. What, what does he say? Verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. And now here's Leviticus 18. Do this and you will live. And notice, he, he, he's already, we already know what he means by live, because what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 25. He's not talking about temporal life. He's talking about eternal life. What do you do to gain eternal life? It's the zillion dollar question, not million dollar question. And what you do is you keep the law, which is what? Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the most basic, 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 fundamental reality of all. So when we say, Righteous is related to God's law. If you have to be righteous, then you have to keep God's law. You have to love Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And as long as you do those things, you will have eternal life. Short line, huh? (laughs) Right? It's a super short line. Nobody's in that line. None of the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Nobody's in the line. And that's where Jesus comes in. How are we doing on questions? What is righteousness? How does it relate to God? I think we can answer that. Uh, Three, how does it relate to sinners? Well, sin is breaking God's law, right? 
It's anything short of loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving neighbor and self. Might have happened once or twice in my life. Um, 1 John 3 says, sin is lawlessness. So that makes sense. Number four, how does it relate to Jesus? This is important. And now we're going to move on. Ready to go? Okay. How about verse 21? But now. Notice the contrast, right? That's, that's why I did this. But now, okay? Now, the righteousness of God. And we should be cowering and, and hating that right now because that means bad things for us because we're not righteous. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made clear, apart from the law. That seems bizarre. That, that, that's seemingly contradictory. What? Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I don't know what that means, but I think it's good. Okay, it's kind of how we act. This, this is good news for us. This is super positive. Maybe let's look at it again. But now, we're all condemned, but, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Apart from the law against us as sinners. See, it just was all bad to us. God's law is not bad, but it's bad to us because we're sinners. Apart from the law for us sinners. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, he has to make sure he says that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And what he's going to do is he's going to make this, this case and he's going to argue this, that, that now we can have righteousness. We can have law keeping and so we can be accepted by God because that's the whole thing. But it's going to be through faith in Jesus Christ. Because he, he, he's, he's the, the perfectly obedient one that we learn about in Romans chapter 5. It's through his obedience that the, the many are justified. He's the one who loves Father with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves neighbor as himself and he does it perfectly. And so this is positive. And if we trust in him, we believe in him, not in ourselves or in something else, then, then, then we're, we're justified. We're declared righteous. So it's, this is awesome. Then he says, Going on in verse 22. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous that is, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, that, it, 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 this is free. This comes to us freely. This comes to us by, by trusting in Him. One thing's for sure, it didn't come freely to Christ. It's free to us. Let's keep going. Verse 25, whom God, this is God's love right here. He doesn't use the word here, but we know it from other texts. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice to satisfy his, his wrath, right? That, that, that's, propitiation is a word that's related to wrath, which, which we've already seen. 
that was against us by his blood, that is through his atoning sacrifice, through his death, to be, to be received. How do we gain benefit from him? By faith, by trusting in him. This was to show God's righteousness. God's showing his character. He's showing who he is as just judge because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just. Another word for righteous or another translation for righteous. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, some of you have heard it a million times from me, but just so we understand. So here is God, not a compromiser. Here is God not somehow not acting like God anymore and changing the requirements. It, would, it wouldn't even be possible. But God is the just. He's the righteous. He's the fair. And fair is everyone who does perfectly will get eternal life. Short line. And anyone who's ever not loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength gets condemned. That's just. That's fair. He's the just and the justifier, the declarer of people righteous. But there aren't any of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is not contradictory. It is not illogical. Because of the substitutionary work of Jesus, because of the, the work of the last Adam, God can be just and forgive you of the worst sins and make you His child and give you a grand inheritance because of the perfect work of Jesus. It's awesome. It really is awesome. Think about it. Think, think if, if God, if God just want, you know, in, in our kind of vernacular pop culture, if God just wanted to be nice, because it's nice to be nice, right? It's like the ultimate virtue. If God just wanted to be nice, let's take Jesus out of the equation and God, let's still have God be a judge with a law. And since he's God, we should treat him like he's God and we're created. And let's just say, who, who should I pick on? I pick on you, Craig? All right, good. Let's just say God said, you know what? I know I have a law that says you should love me with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love neighbor as yourself. Craig, I know you haven't and uh, I'm just going to make an exception because I'm nice. Now we all, as 21st century Americans, would say, that's good. In fact, that's the God I believe in. That's nice because I'm nice. Let's be nice. God wouldn't be just. God wouldn't be worthy of being treated like he's God. He's worse than the worst of corrupt judges. So what we need to do is make sure we're not ignorant of God's righteousness. I use that little silly kind of illustration so that we're not so ignorant of God's righteousness like in Romans chapter 10. 
the law stands. He can't, can't contradict his being and who he is and his nature. And, 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 and it stands and it's bad news for everybody. The, the prettiest, most handsome looking people and the nicest people. No one has done this. No, not one. And so we say, we're slain. This is terrible. This is awful. God's fairness is terrible. Really. Because I'm a violator. And then steps in Jesus. The great exchange, right? The just for the unjust. And now we see Christianity for what it is and we're like, yes, awesome. This is fantastic. This is extraordinary. I don't know where we stopped, but it sure was fun talking about just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. You guys want to keep talking about law? I'll give you law. It's the law of faith, the law of faith in Christ. For we hold that one is justified, that is declared a law keeper, declared righteous, declared perfect. One is justified by faith, that is in Christ in the context, apart from works of the law. Or is God the one of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overflow the, overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. I love that. Now, in our self-righteousness, what we do is read, we read that out of context. We uphold the law. Yep, I do good. Yep, I do. But the idea is, and in, in based upon what he says, if it's the law by f- this faith, we uphold the law? We uphold the law when we trust in Jesus. <laughs> because then we see God's law is what it is. And it has to be obeyed perfectly for there to be acceptance. And so by believing in Jesus, the one who kept God's law perfectly, we're accepted by God through him. We uphold the law. We don't throw the law away. We're, 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 we're totally true to the law. Not as legalists, but as Christians who are trusting that Jesus loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Sometimes people say, oh, Jesus is the kinder, gentler Moses. So the Sermon on the Mount, it's so awesome. You know, Moses was so grumpy. Moses, law, you know, the statues in Rome have horns even. He's so grumpy. Well, that's, that's related to something else. But anyway... Law is bad, Moses, and Jesus comes along, Sermon on the Mount, the be happy attitudes. Right? Robert Schuller. That's, that's the name of his book. Read the Sermon on the Mount. If anybody has horns, it's Jesus. Now, I don't mean that. If anybody was a strict adherer to the law, it was Jesus. Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Now, I think they were saying the same thing. 
because the law isn't changing, but Jesus is the one who's making sure that everybody understands. Don't commit adultery. If you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've done it. He's not a kinder, gentler Moses. He didn't come to get rid of the law. He came to fulfill the law. Okay. Okay, we need to be done, okay? Um, We need to be done. But when you read passages like Romans 2.13, and it says, the doers of the law will be justified. Don't read that like someone who's not a Christian and say, yeah, better get busy if I'm going to be justified. Don't do that. You are a legalist if you do that. Read that in context and you say, praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ, the doer of the law. It's justified and he carries me with him. In other words, don't take the teeth out of it. Don't take the the gravitas out of it. Don't take the strictness out of it. Because here's what's going to happen. If you do, you will become a legalist in trying to do it yourself. Let the law be what God says it is. And it is massive and daunting and undoable by us because we're sinners. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It can't be done. Just let it be for what it is. Insurmountable. Doers of the law will be justified. That's not good news. Let's get busy. It's terrible news. In walks Jesus. It's good news for us. Because he did it perfectly. Which gives us life. And now we're at a place where we can get busy. Get busy fueled by gratitude. Get busy fueled by praise adoration, thanksgiving. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Praise be to God. How awesome that God accepts me right now as righteous. Pat the law keeper. I stand before you right now in God's eyes, not in Molly's eyes as someone who God sees as having loved him with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved neighbor as himself perfectly. Because I stand in the shadow of Calvary. And if you stand in the shadow of Calvary, trusting in Jesus, it's true of you too. And it's your only hope. But it's a great hope. It's a great hope. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the fact that Our faith in Him is counted to us as righteous, as it says in Romans 4. And we are grateful. We are grateful for Him, and we're grateful for what You've done for us in Your Son, Jesus. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for the perfect atoning sacrifice that happened at Calvary. Thank You for everything that led up to that. Thank You that You, the all-wise God, had a plan and a purpose to carry this about all along. May we be faithful worshipers who are seeking to honor you in light of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.